Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in History. I'm Marcus Grodi, your co-host for this program, joined by Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. Hello, Marcus. Good to see you. We're going to take a couple more small steps through uh, Irenaeus' Against Heresy. Um, You know, Monsignor, when I said that, uh, what came to my mind is that, what was the name of that comedian that was on the Carol Burnett show, you know, that... What was his name? Who played an old man who took those little bitty steps? Remember that? Do you remember That's that before image? before my time. Oh, sorry. okay, okay. Yeah, I'm just the old guy here, but <laughs> I pictured him. What was his name? And he was taking. He would take. He played this old guy. that took these little steps. Well, I, that, that's what crossed my mind as I thought how how fast we're getting through this book. And today, our goal is. We're going to begin on page 497, and we're going to begin with the last part of Book 5, Chapter 20, Section 2, I think. Yes, just the last part of that. We Remember last week we kind of got there, and we thought, well, let's, there's a lot in that little paragraph. And then we're going, our goal is to get through chapter 22. We're going to get all the way through page 502. Right, Monsignor? That would be a wonderful goal. Um, And if you will, let me give just an overview of it, Monsignor. And I, I think today, uh, even more so than usual, I'm going to lean on your patristic knowledge to fill in some of the gaps. Um, I have seven things, and because it's the number seven, that means it must be inspired. It must be of God. It must be, yeah. You know, so, but I have seven things that uh, I've gleaned from this section that we'll come back to, right, Monsignor? And the first is, how... How can we avoid how can we avoid becoming so wise that we're cast out of the paradise of life? That's the first thing we're going to talk about. How can we avoid becoming so quote wise that we're cast out of the paradise of life? Number two, I want to revisit this unique phrase that Irenaeus uses throughout his book several dozen times in this idea of our Lord gathering up all things into himself. What does that phrase mean? We've talked about it before, but I think that's a really important theme. Number three, we're going to talk about the relationship between man and the spirit. And that's all, those three things are all in a part of that last part of chapter 20, section 2. And then we're going to get into four last things. Number one, the reality of the devil in the theology of Irenaeus. Number two, the he in uh, section uh, uh, chapter twenty-one, section one, we see Irenaeus's Bible study, if you will, on what is often called the first gospel, and that's in. Genesis chapter 3, the first prophetic glimpse that one day the error of Adam and Eve will be overturned. And we see that glimpsed in Genesis 3. So we see Aaron has given reflection on that. And then number three, in section 2 through, pretty much through chapter 22, we have Irenaeus's Bible study, if you will, reflection on the temptation of Christ. And then finally, 
he gives some lessons of what we can take away from the temptation of Christ. What do we learn from it? Does that sound good, Monsignor? Sounds great. Okay. So, let's go back then to page 497. And Monsignor, I'm going to read that little section, and then we'll, we'll jump into that. Well, let me first just read, I'll just read that first opening sentence, and we'll begin at the bottom of page 496, I guess. Uh, for which cause the apostle also saith, not to be wise more than one ought to be wise, but to be wise unto soberness, lest, feeding upon their knowledge, that which is wise more than it ought to be, we be cast out of the paradise of life, into which the Lord bringeth those who obey his instructions. And I want to stop there. Now, on the one hand, Monsignor, in a certain sense, he's not saying anything that he hasn't said before throughout the book. No. I mean, that's just a summary of what he's doing. That's correct, yeah. But what jumped out at me is the phrase, um, we be cast out of the paradise of life into which the Lord bringeth those who obey his instructions. That phrase, obey his instructions. Now, I don't, your background, Monsignor, I don't know, as a, a former Anglican, I'm not sure this was as big of an issue for you as it was for me as a former Calvinist. But the reason this jumps out at me is the importance of obeying the words and teachings of Jesus. And the, and the reason it's important to me is that there is a, a wide swath of Christians, evangelical Christians, that because of their theology, they are, are drawn to diminish the importance of the teachings of Christ. And the reason is, is that they see in the teachings of Christ a bit too much works righteousness. Sermon on the Mount, be perfect. Um, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you this. And so what many theologies do is they have an idea of an, a plan A and a plan B, and they see this represented in the book of Romans a plan A and a plan B. And a plan A is works righteousness. And you'll be judged by what you do. And so that's what Jesus was saying to those people. But it's before the cross. And the idea is that after the cross, all that is thrown out. And now we're saved by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And so we have a plan B and that's, as their interpretation is, that's in the second part of Romans, or actually the Roman road is some. And so we emphasize more the teachings of Paul than we did the teachings of Jesus. Now, does that relate at all to your background, Monsignor? Some, somewhat. There were, there were some in the Anglican world that thought that way. It not, was not typical, I don't think. But... You, you bring up a good point, and especially for, here we are, you know, we're, we're talking, we're doing this podcast within the overall mission of the Coming Home Network. So perhaps, you know, it's good just to be reminded, where do we find the teachings of Christ? Scripture? Where do we read Scripture? In the communion of the church. Yeah. And Irenaeus says that just a few few sentences above, over there on page uh, four ninety six, um, about we must fly to refuge, fly for refuge to the church and be trained in her bosom and be nourished up in the scriptures of the Lord. Um, yep. Then he goes on a couple of lines down: Feed ye all on the scriptures, but ye shall not eat of a mind that is lifted up 
nor touch anywhere the contentiousness of heretics. For they profess themselves to have the knowledge of good and evil, and upon the God who made them, they hurl their own impious thoughts. Um, I think that's one of the things I'd probably want to respond to, is that you, when you encounter all these um, interesting, but you wonder where they come from, um, exercises in private judgment, like, you know, you, you mentioned two different uh, exegetical plans to yeah. read scripture, you know, yeah. that, and that's one of the arguments for reading the scriptures in, in the fellowship of the church, as we stay within the apostles' teaching. I, I'm going to make a reference here just because it'll allow us to move on a little bit, but I recently taped uh, what we're calling a second farm reflection. Um, it's going to be posted on our website as a Deep in Scripture episode. And <clears throat> in fact, I think it'll be released the same week that this is released, um, in which I do a reflection on 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 19. And it's really saying this very, it's, it's saying what Irenaeus is talking about. It's almost as if everything Irenaeus has done has been a carrying out of what Paul is warning about. Because here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. He says, teach and urge these duties. So it's Paul teaching the young bishop Timothy, who's now assigned to Ephesus. Here's what you got to do. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching which accords to godliness, so there it is, the sound words of Jesus. So remember, I said many Christians don't listen to Jesus, they listen to Paul. What does Paul mm -hmm. say to listen to? Jesus. Jesus. What? I didn't see that before. <laughs> if anyone teaches otherwise and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, if we had time, the rest of this part of 1 Timothy is basically St. Paul's reflection on the Sermon on the Mount. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount is basically in here. He's reflecting on the words of Jesus. But if you don't follow the words of Jesus... He is puffed up with conceit. He knows nothing. He has a morbid craving for controversy, for dispute about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling among men who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's against heresy summed up in one line, isn't it, Monsignor? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Marcus, I wanted to say I did watch... That um, that filming of the farm, your farm film too. It's wonderful. It was it deeply moved me, and uh, I just I highly encourage people to see it when it's released. Well, thank you, Monsignor. Yeah. I, I to me it is as you can see from the video, Monsignor. It it's not only a reflection on 1 Timothy, but it really is a reflection on what you and I have been studying all these months from, from uh, against heresies. And that is, one of the things I allude to in, in that, well, I don't allude to it in, in, in that per se, but I have a friend of mine who's a Protestant minister. We've been friends since seminary, and he listened to that video, and he liked it. But his comment was, in relationship to our study of Irenaeus, he says, well, that's your, your focus on the early fathers is indicative of the room of the house in which you live. And, and when he says that, he's referring to what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, that they were all in this long hallway, and then people take different rooms. We can't lay, stay in the hallway, he says. We've got to choose a room. But as Lewis never made the commitment to tell you which room to be in, but you can't live in the hallway. So my, my good friend says, well, you know, you, it's indicative of, he's a Presbyterian, this, this is indicative of the room. 
And he uses that word room and avoids use of the word which it really means is tradition. Tradition. You know, I don't know what kind of a house Lewis was describing, but, you know, a great house has a magnificent grand entry hall. <laughs> and perhaps we should talk about open concept. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Um, but the only thing I wanted to say about that, and I think about what, why what Irenaeus really spoke to me in this and why it connects with First Timothy is that I can listen to many of my non-Catholic Christian buddies who are clergy. I listen to their sermons. And more often than not, I agree with almost 100% of what they say. I do. I even yeah. listen to, I've got cassettes of my sermons from 30 years ago when I was a Presbyterian pastor. I listened to him and I, yeah, I, I agree with all that I said. The problem is that the stuff that I leave out, and a lot of what we leave out are the hard teachings of Jesus because they're hard. And so if you're a Christian that believes, well, it doesn't really matter ultimately what I do because I'm covered with the just, I'm, I'm covered with the righteousness of Jesus that blinds God to my unworthiness, then it's easy to ignore the hard teachings of Jesus or even the hard teachings of the epistles about the necessity of suffering. Romans 8, we're adopted children provided we suffer. Uh, our Lord said, Unless you renounce all, you can't be a disciple of mine, he said. Well, what does that mean? I'll just avoid that one. Unless you're perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect, eh, I can't get there. I'll avoid that one. Uh, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes, eh, I'll just avoid that one. No, Irenaeus, as did Paul, said, lest... We be cast out of the paradise of life into which the Lord bringeth those who obey his instruction, the necessity. And so what should that make us do? Well, later we're going to see Irenaeus say, we won't jump all the way to this, but he says on the bottom of page 501, then in no wise to be lifted up nor to tempt God, but in every way to be lowly-minded. Humility. Humility. Uh, and that's one of the things that I learned to appreciate so much as I've grown to be in, in understanding the teaching of the church that we've received. All right, Monsignor. Any more thoughts on that particular thing? No, no, uh-uh. Okay, everybody. Uh, again, go much if you want. We'll find out more about it. Go watch that farm video that I reflected on this very topic. All right. Then the second thing, Monsignor, that I really wanted us and I really wanted you to get into is it, I was confronted again by this phrase, which is it seems to me so uniquely Irenaeus. And on this page, 497, and over to 498, he literally uses this phrase uh, one, two, three, four, five times. And he's used this phrase several dozen times throughout the book. And it's this unique phrase in which, if we go on with that same sentence, gathering up into himself all things which are in heaven and which are in earth. Now the things in heaven are the spiritual things, but the things in earth is the dispensation relating to man. These accordingly he hath gathered up into himself. And then jump down to the beginning of the next paragraph. Thus gathering all into one, he was himself gathered into one. 
Jump down to the bottom of the page, about seven lines up. For this cause the Lord also professes himself the Son of Man, gathering up into himself that original man of whom the formation of the woman took place. And then I'll just jump to the next top of the next page, 496. But the Lord would not have gathered up into himself that old and original enmity against the serpent. Uh, this phrase, Monsignor, gathering up into himself. You know, that I could not really find that very often in Scripture. There's a lot of verses that use the word gathering, gathering to himself, calling the disciples to go out and gather in, a hen wishing she could gather in Jerusalem, you know, gather in the wheat, the tares, you know, this idea of gathering in, but this is different. Reflect on that if you would, Monsignor. I believe, I believe it's only one verse in the New Testament that uses that term. And it's the one that he saw with at the top of page 497, uh, Ephesians 1.10. Um, this, this idea, um, gathering up into himself all things which are in heaven and which are on earth. That word in the Greek word is anakephaliasis, or in the Latin is recapitulatio. We transliterate it recapitulation. And this is this is really the, the one of the most distinctive ideas that Irenaeus gives to the church. Um, is this it's his doctrine or theory of atonement um, that that Christ came down and he recapitulates or reforms or recreates everything in creation that had been ruined by Satan. Uh, it had been, it, you know, it had been damaged by Satan. And so everything, um, not just in John, not just on earth, but in heaven as well, because, you know, the rebellion of the angels there too, all of that is going to be reformed um, and, and created in its original perfection and given to Christ, who is the Lord of the universe. It's his, it's his kingdom. And, and that's, um, that's, that's St. Irenaeus' doctrine of recapitulation. Yeah, we, it's all based on Ephesians 1.10. We, we, there's those phrases, this idea that he took upon himself our sins. That's another aspect of this recapitulation. That's right, yeah. yeah. In his incarnation and becoming man, he was able to have a unity with us that otherwise he wouldn't have been able to have. And so he takes into him, takes it all into himself to the cross. I'd just like to point out for those of you that want to look more into this, if you go to page 268, which is book three, chapter 16, section six. There's a paragraph there that there is, he says, there is therefore one God the Father, as we have declared, and one Christ Jesus our Lord coming throughout the economy and gathering up all things into himself. Now among those all is man also, the creature of God. Therefore he is gathering man also into himself. He, the invisible made visible, and the incomprehensible made comprehensible, and the impassable made capable of suffering, and the word made man gathering up all unto himself. That is, in the things which are above the heavens, and spiritual and invisible, the word of God is chief, so also among things visible and corporeal he may have the the chiefly, taking the first place to himself, and that assigning to himself the station of head to the church, he may attract all things to himself in convenient season. I mean, there's Irenaeus' theology. That's, that's right. That's a very important text you pointed to there. <laughs> all right. So I, we were coming back to it here, and, and so you can see it, it really, if you will, is like a thread in the mm -hmm. garment 
of the section that we're looking for. It flows through it. It's the underlying theology that's in Irenaeus's mind of his understanding, even as he interprets the first gospel and interprets the temptation of Christ. All right, Monsignor, the third thing that I want to point out is in that same paragraph is the relationship mm -hmm. between man and the spirit. He says, these accordingly he hath gathered up unto himself, uniting man to spirit and placing spirit in man. He became himself the head of the spirit, giving at the same time the spirit to be the head of man. For through him we have seen and heard and speak. This is, well, we go back to what we've been talking about a little bit about his his picture of the human person. Um, body and soul are natural to the rational human. To body and soul are rational are are, are natural to the rational animal. Spirit is something added from above. It's not natural to us. We, if we had it, we lost it in the Garden of Eden. And, and so um, I think the point here he makes is that, that the spiritual part of man, so he uses a small s spirit here, not the Holy Spirit, the, but we are in this new creation in Christ now, we are, and we are given this enhanced um, entity called spirit, which has its foundations in heaven. Um, and he becomes the head of it. So it's something, something, not, something has been added or restored. I'm not sure if I want to use the word added or restored there, but, but this, this spiritual aspect has been given back to man now because of Christ and what he has done. I'm looking for a verse here. Um, uh, in which, well, I'm not going to find it here, so I'm sorry to distract here a little bit. Um, but you see how important the spirit is here. Yeah. Um, the spirit is becomes the head of man. For through him, through Christ, we have seen and heard and speak. So the Spirit basically becomes the presence of Christ in in our own in our own person. The image, the perfect image. Yeah, I found that, you know, because we don't exactly share Irenaeus's view. A little right. confusing today, right. you know, and so to me that's a good point of just to remind the audience we're not we're not reading Irenaeus as if he's as inspired and infallible as the Bible or the teaching of the church. No, he's a witness, and we 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 read him as a reliable witness who was close to Jesus. You know, Jesus to John to Polycarp to Irenaeus, and so the passing on of that truth, and we see it reflected. It doesn't mean that everything Irenaeus, but we're at a stage in where sometimes the things he's saying, you know, he's talking about ideas, but they don't hit the fan until later, and then the church says, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa wait here, then we got to clarify it, because there are different views out there. And uh, here we have 175, well, by 275, 100 years later, we're having people already starting to have strange views of Jesus yeah. that are going to lead to in 150 years, a, a council called uh, Nicaea. So, all right, thank you, Monsignor. Um, the, the next four points, as we begin chapter 21, really bring us to a longer discussion on the devil, the enemy, the Antichrist. And this will go on for a while, but we'll, we'll just get into that today. But the first point that I want to make, especially today, 
I mean, all of us know that we're living just in a pristine age where there's everything is is just so ideally good. And you can't turn on the news just seeing, how did Woodhouse always put it, you know, sweetness and light. I think that's a Wood, Woodhouse always in his uh, description of Bertie Wooster, you know, just sweetness and light out there. Everything is just sweetness and light. Uh, but uh, no, we're living at a time when it's crazy. And I think I'm sure I mentioned in this program, good old Par Har Paul Harvey in his wonderful article about what I would do if I were the devil, he says the first thing I'd do is convince the world I don't exist. <laughs> and so I would say... That wasn't that... C.S. Lewis right, wrote basically the same thing, didn't he? And, yeah, and I think um, I don't think that was a new concept. I just think of Paul yeah. Harvey because he's such a commonly well-known person. Uh, but a lot of people wouldn't expect to hear that from him, but that's what he said. Yeah. And so we live in a day and age when I just read statistics yesterday that more than 45% of adult Americans no longer attend a church or profess any particular faith. So if that, if 45%, my, I kind of doubt that they accept the reality of, of the devil. My um, guess is the percentage so the, is higher the than devil's, that. The, they think the devil is just the, the dark side of a human psyche. Yeah. So, so in general, of I don't know, at least over 50% of the people that, that you see on TV don't accept the reality of the devil, and a good percentage of the other 50%, Christians, we live our lives as if we, we kind of give them lip service that there's a devil, but do we recognize the battle that we're in? And the first point I wanted to make in this, Monsignor, is that there's no question, not only that Irenaeus takes the devil seriously, completely, there's no question there. As with the New Testament epistles, and as with our Lord Jesus. I mean, in my view, it's an oxymoron to say you, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, but you don't recognize the reality of the devil that's the it. i think he, he'd say well what, what would be the point of jesus christ coming then yeah yeah i mean everything here but not only does Irenaeus just without question accept the reality of the spiritual battle the devil and his horde and the fallen angels but the guys he's fighting against the gnostics still accept it. They just have different explanations. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to point out, for example, way back on page 17, so we're in the very beginning of the book. In fact, this is not even in book one. This is in the prologue on page 17, um, where he says, it's in section four of the chapter five of the prologue, on the bottom of page 16, the material substance then being, as they say, made out of three passions or affections, fear, grief, and perplexity. You know, sometimes I just wonder whether Irenaeus is, is being straight on this or it's always tongue-in-cheek because it, it, the stuff he says is so bizarre. But if you go down then for after that, he says about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight or so lines down on page 17, from grief... Again, they teach that the spiritual powers of wickedness proceeded, that hence the devil had his origin, whom also they call the ruler of this world, his demons too, and his angels, and all that spiritually exists on the side of wickedness. So one, my only point here is that, that everybody here accepts the reality of, of the devil. It's just how do you explain yeah. him? How do you understand him? And that gets us back to following the words of Christ. If you just listen to what our Lord talks about the devil, 
and the reality of the devil in the Gospels, in the Epistles, teaching of the Church. Uh, he's very clear. And so I just wanted to point that out here, Monsi. Any other thought on that? Uh, well, you, you, that passage you quoted back in, 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 on page 17, um, the, the, there was Gnostics that thought the devil was the son of the father of this world. <laughs> there is a modern Christian, quote, sect that believes a similar thing. Really? Who believe that Jesus and the devil are brothers. It's called Mormonism. I did not. I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. They I don't did, have it exactly uh, right. But, you know, yeah. those of you, that, any, any ex-Mormons or Mormons listening, but, yeah. you know, they, they really see these two as brothers under the Father. And they become, you become God, just like we will become gods in Mormon theology. Which is it's kind fascinating. of. Fascinating. Well, it's, you know. Divinized. We teach that too. Augustine taught that, but in a little different way. So, um, so I wanted to first point out the reality of the devil. That's he's not trying to argue the reality of the devil here. He's not giving an apologetic to prime proof. That wasn't the question. In today's day and age, to people think you're crazy if you believe the reality of the devil. In the process, the devil laughs. Look at the confusion in our world. The devil laughs. Look at people thinking about themselves in ways that 50 years ago they would have thought people had a mental problem. But we, we promote it today in our culture. The devil laughs. The devil laughs. Uh, but that wasn't the issue here because except the reality of it. But, but given the reality of it, what do we glean from it? Well, section 1 of chapter 21 He's doing a Bible study on Genesis chapter 3. Right, Monsignor? That's right. Uh-huh. I'm going to throw this over to you maybe then. So Genesis chapter 3 is what often is covered the first gospel. Adam and Eve have fallen. God has found them in the garden, guilty. Irenaeus earlier in the book says that he sees in Adam a sense of remorse through the covering up of himself. In other words, a sign that he, he recognizes the guilt, and so he covers himself up. Irenaeus recognized that earlier in the book. But then there's those phrases in Genesis 3 where, where God you know, deals out punishment on the devil— on the serpent, and then punishment on man, and punishment on Eve. But then there's those verses of hope, right, Monsignor, that look forward. And here we have a reflection on that from Irenaeus. Marcus, you know, the, I think first thing I'd say is, um, is, is it's worth noting that, that uh, in Genesis 3.15 is seen as a prophecy of, of the Blessed Virgin Mary and her son. Um, you know, that, that who is it going to, that's going to um, uh, have enmity between uh, one seed and the other seed? Um, uh, it's, he's, he says here, of him who had to be born of a virgin woman in the likeness of Adam, it, her seed, was announced as the marking of the serpent's uh, head. So that's that, you use the word um, a proto-gospel here, and that's a, that's a good way to describe it. Um, it's, it, it, is a, it is a very powerful prophecy of the, of the coming of Christ. And his means of overcoming Satan means of overcoming the serpent um, you know follow this pattern and just down a few more sentences I, I was really struck with this line um, for the enemy would not have been fairly overcome had not his conqueror been born uh, been a man born of a woman 
I was, I've always been fascinated as we've been reading Irenaeus how God's victory over, over, over the serpent has to be fair. It has to be um, order, properly ordered. God, God is not some marauder from another universe that comes and conquers the Lord of this world. Um, he comes and, and beats the devil at his own game. Um, and that, of course, this is the part of reversing or recapitulating uh, what had been undone in the fall. But um, but he takes such care, Irenaeus does, to show how it is that um, that 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 God sent His Son and defeated the devil fair and square, if you will, on His own terms. I, I've always taken that really fast. It's fascinating to me. You know, Monsignor, I would not be surprised if somewhere out there gathering dust in a library, there is a PhD dissertation on this section, starting uh, section chapter 21 and 22 together as a package of Irenaeus' theology on the defeat and binding of Satan, beginning with, with uh, you know, Adam and Eve in, in paradise, the devil tricking them, conquering man, he says, right there in the bottom of page yeah. 497, that as by a conquered man our race went down unto death, so by a conquering man, again, we might go up into life. And this whole section begins with that proto-gospel, the fall, the prophetic idea that the seed of Mary will crush the Satan, crush the serpent. And then he moves on in section 2 through chapter 22 to go from the reference in Genesis 3 to the temptation of Christ in the desert. And Irenaeus sees that, and this is the title of our episode, as the binding of, of the devil. Right, Monsi? Yeah, I, my little note on, on uh, section 2 there, um, it was necessary that Christ comes from the Creator Father and not from some other in order to make war on the serpent, um, because the serpent was created by, he was he was a creation of the Father, and so um, it's it's all in God's economy, if you will. You know, everything happens under under the rooftop of the Father's creation here. Um, Christ comes and defeats the serpent by using the precepts of the law. Um, so, I mean, you know, the whole of salvation history is tied up in this whole thing. Um, and that introduces us then to the importance of the temptation of the Lord in the wilderness, yeah. because it's it all turns on these precepts of the law. Yeah, Paul, you remember the Romans 7? I, I always have taken Romans 7 I don't know. Some Paul saying, it wasn't me, it was sin that did it. You know, Paul, <laughs> you know, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't. Uh, the problem's sin. You know, well, Paul, but but he says there, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't have known it was sin. In fact, I wouldn't have been tempted to do it if I hadn't read it in the yeah. law. That's what he's saying mm -hmm. in, in Romans 7, you, you know. Uh, so the law didn't save me, it made it worse. For, law, for Paul, now whether he is saying this is true for everybody or just for him, he's saying that's one way to understand Romans 8, I mean Romans 7. But in this, Irenaeus makes his strongest emphasis in this whole section is that our Lord defeated the devil through the law. Those three temptations, it's just fascinating. You know, I don't. I bet a lot of us haven't ever really thought through the temptation of the Lord 
with such clarity as um, as Irenaeus writes here. I think I think this section would be um, just so beneficial for people just to reflect on in their prayers. So because yeah. those temptations, you know, are are temptations that come to everyone. Um, and you know, if you see at the end of this that Irenaeus is going to say that this here is the binding of the devil, which is unique in itself. So where he's working mm-hmm. towards, he begins by making the first the first temptation. The point he makes is that that mankind fell as a result of food. So the first temptation is about food. Christ has to get hungry. Yeah, so he so fasts for 40 days. He gets hungry. Yeah. So he is in the ultimate, he's put himself, gathering into himself all of humanity, and he's forced himself into a situation to be the most vulnerable, essentially to make the same mistake that Adam exactly. and Eve made. And Irenaeus points out that Adam and Eve, they weren't hungry. They had all the food they wanted. <laughs> But they were just gluttonous. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't about food so much. It was about being like God. Yeah. But to, def- to overturn yeah. that failure, our Lord completely puts himself. Again, it's almost like Gethsemane, you know, everything on him mm-hmm. in this moment. It's what he does here. And then he uses the law to defeat the devil's first temptation. Um, And then the second temptation, the devil himself uses the law to try and tempt Jesus. All right, if this is what Uh Jesus is going to use, the devil uses himself. But as Irenaeus points out, the devil misuses Scripture, twists it, adds to it, things that aren't in Scripture, which is exactly what the devil did to Eve. Takes it too far. Irenaeus points that out. Hiding his falsehood by means of Scripture, as do all the heretics, Irenaeus says. So in other words, it isn't merely a, if you will, sola scriptura, it's a using scripture to convey your own agenda. And that that happens today infinitely, if you will, in false gospels that are out there on the internet. People are using the Bible, but really they're getting across their own agenda. And as you mentioned earlier in the program, that's why Irenaeus says you got to fly to the church to make sure. Even you as a preacher, folks, that you might be blind to how your own agenda you're reading into Scripture. That was the reason yeah. I left the pulpit in the first place to become Catholic, because I realized, how do I know that what I'm preaching isn't just me? How do I know that? Uh, not all these Gnostics were just nasty guys. Many of them were very sincere people that really believed that what they were teaching was true. They really believed it. You could be blind to that. But once again, the Lord refuted the devil with the law. And there in the middle of 499, the high thoughts then, which were in the serpent, were done away with by the humility which was in the man. The humility. But, you know, he was trying to say, I, you know, throw thyself down. God will take care of you. Well, he was misusing scripture, but in the yeah. end, it was a humility which was in the man. And now was the devil twice vanquished out of the scriptures. You know, once again, Irenaeus, the infallibility, the power of scriptures, the law. This whole thing is based on that. And then thirdly, the devil claimed falsely authority and power that he didn't have. 
Uh, it says there, down a little bit, he thirdly shewed unto him all the kingdoms of the world, saying, as Luke records, all these things I will give you. For to me are they delivered, and to whom I will give, I give them. If thou wilt fall down and worship me. The Lord therefore exposing him as he was, saith, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And then he gets into, I love it, Monsignor. He, he gives why we call the devil Satan. Right? The Hebrew word signifying apostate. Yeah. And thus overcoming him the third time for the failure he drove drave him away from himself as fairly overcome in the transgression of God's commandments which had been in Adam was done away by the precept of the law which the Son of Man observed not transgressing the commandment of Christ. So, so Satan, the serpent basically tempts Adam and Eve by misusing God's words. And uh, he is overcome by God's words. And there is this wonderful sense, again, of, of judicial fairness in St. Irenaeus. Devil is overcome by the very methods that he used to lead humankind captive. Again, many of us today might be hearing us say, well, we know all this stuff. We've heard preach sermons on the temptation a bazillion times. And again, what I think fascinates me, and I think maybe you too, Monsignor, is that we're hearing a very early Bible study on this, one of the earliest. That's right. That's what's fascinating about this, folks. This is one of the earliest recorded Bible studies on the temptation of Christ. And we're seeing his interpretation, how it's reflected through the ears. And we see some things that are a little different in Irenaeus that maybe we don't always hear. And if you turn to page Five, 500, at the end of this section, we see it summed up, and here's where we see something a little different. Right, Monsignor? Uh-huh. Which I found fascinating. The beginning of that, he says, For these things had been foretold in the law, and by the sentence of the law the Lord on the one hand showeth that the law announces the word of God from the Father. On the other, the apostate angel of God is overthrown by its voice, his being exposed, and he vanquished by the Son of God, keeping the command of God. And if you go down a little bit, a couple sentences down, it says, By these he bound the man. It was also meet that he, on the contrary, should through man be overcome and bound with the same change. Down a couple sentences, for the binding of him was the loosing of man. The, the emphasis here is that Irenaeus sees this, pulls them together, the original temptation in the proto-gospel that someday this will be overturned, and he sees the overturning of this in the temptation of Christ. And after Jesus, in his full humanity, allows himself in every way to be tempted, Hebrew says, in every way as we are, but without sin, fully in every way, through the food, through the mis devil's misuse of Scripture, through the temptation of power, he allows himself to receive those temptations. But through the power of the Word of God, he defeats Satan, and Satan is bound. Yeah, just ahead of what you just read here um, about what is the nature of Satan's power over us, um, that power is transgression and apostasy. So disobedience and, and, um, and, and leaving the communion or fellowship of God. That's how he bound man. Um, a marvelous definition of what we're up against. And this, as you mentioned uh, earlier in reading that, the word Satan 
means apostate. Apostate, yeah. He, Irenaeus doesn't make this connection, but I can't help but think it was in the back of his mind. Now, we're going to get, in, in a little while, we're going to get to Irenaeus's interpretation of the end times, but I can't help but hear behind here Revelations chapter 20. And Augustine, I don't, in his City of God, I, I'm not an expert on that by any means, but I, I think he makes that connection in, I think it's book 20 of, of City oh, yeah, of God. Book 20. And if you listen to what we just read, and if you're looking at that, you might want to make a note for yourself in Revelation 20. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Now, just pause here. Those are all the words that Irenaeus pulls together in this. The dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were ended. Now, when are these thousand years in which the devil has been bound and cannot deceive the nations for a thousand years? But then there's something after that which Revelations goes on. Irenaeus has a, a different view of this pretty yes, soon, yeah. right? right? Yeah. But following Augustine, which basically the church does, if you look in the catechism, the church takes the perspective, the Catholic church takes the perspective that the thousand years isn't a literal thousand years, but it is the age of the church that we're living in. And the binding of Satan is at the beginning of this age, which therefore would fit with what Irenaeus is talking about. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be really interesting when we get to that point, because it'll be something that a lot of us are have not experienced or heard of before. That um Yeah, the view the, the view that you know, we're so used to in the Rapture and the, the Left Behind series and different view of this, but the Catholic view has been, going all the way back at least to Augustine, is that this binding of the Satan, of the devil, is the time we're living in. Now, if you go back to the earliest writers of the church, it recognized it doesn't mean that the devil couldn't have his way, but the binding of him is so that the nation's could now hear the gospel. That's the point. And so, if you will, what's interesting about that interpretation, if you take that's what Irenaeus is meaning, is that the binding of the devil takes place at the beginning of our Lord's earthly ministry. And so, that's what, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Which means that now people can hear the gospel. What happens almost immediately after the binding of Satan, therefore, is that that's when Christ's ministry begins, and that's where we have the Sermon on the Mount. And so it isn't that the people hearing can't hear, though we know from our Lord saying that in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, there are some that can't hear, and which I think mainly refers to the leadership of the Jewish church, the Pharisees and the scribes. But he is speaking to the people as if now by grace they can hear. It's because the Satan has been bound. If you just, just take that interpretation from Irenaeus. No, I, I think that's right. Because what Irenaeus really does believe is that the, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness um, has, an, has an historical significance it's not meant to be symbolic of his future struggles with Satan and, and victory yeah. over him, but something has 
fundamentally happened when he was rebuked in the wilderness. It was an important part in his yeah. in in his journey and yeah. in the proclamation of the gospel. And in my mind, preparing his successors for the time when he dies, resurrects, and then ascends, passes the baton to them. Praise, hey guys, don't make the same mistakes they used to make. Stay united, stay faithful. And then, as Irenaeus would say, they were given the Holy Spirit to protect the deposit of faith that our Lord had passed to them, and then they pass it on. But there's a, there's a binding of Satan in that, so that when Jesus says, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have taught you, the idea that they can do that now, and that the people can be receptive to that, is because the devil was bound. In the book of Acts, just that's, that's, that's showing what happened. The very first sermon of Peter, I think a few people mm-hmm. responded, right? 3,000. How's that possible? Because the devil's been bound, and their hearts can be opened by grace to receive. That's great. You know, um, as we conclude this um, chapter, too, there's some words that, show how we uh, have so much in common with our separated brethren, those last words in the chapter there. Um, Man might learn by actual trial how that not of himself, but by free gift of God, he receiveth incorruption. Sola gratia? I thought that was wonderful there. Yeah, yeah. What a wonderful way to sum that whole up, that yeah. whole thing out. It, it, I actually go back to the beginning of that paragraph. And while he was yeah. justly led captive, who had led man captive unjustly, man who had before been led captive was withdrawn from his possess, possessor's power by the mercy of God the Father, who pitied his own handiwork and gave it salvation, renewing it by the word that is Christ. And then the sentence. The reason I wanted to attempt that is the mercy of God. In Greek, that word is the translated word for the Hebrew word chesed, which was always translated the steadfast love of God. This, Whenever you see in the Old Testament, over and over and over and over again, God's people fail, they fail, they fail, they fail. And God is always justly able and willing to say, all right, guys, you chose, you dug your hole. But God's mercy was always there. And if you got a glimpse of repentance, Mm. like the father waiting for the prodigal son, a glimpse of repentance, he would, the Old Testament say, God would repent, relent. But now he's showing his mercy in his steadfast love. All right, Monsignor, we wanted it's it's uh, over an hour. Sorry, folks. We wanted to finish oh, the we've next. Gone that long? We have. Oh, Time my. flies. We wanted so we to. Sit, we'll pick up on the uh, chapter twenty-two. Do you want to wait, or you just want to do it quickly? Because there wasn't much in that. Well, we'll pick up twenty-two uh, next week. You want whatever you think. Yeah, well, it's it's time. So we'll start with twenty-two. What we're seeing, okay. we'll, we'll get into lessons from the temptation of Christ, uh, and that's in that chapter. And then we're going to move on to um, more about the devil and the battle with the devil, and then we'll get into the Antichrist. All right, Monsignor? That sounds wonderful. Antichrist kind of jumps in in chapter t- 25. So, All right. Well, then, Monsignor, would you close us with prayer? Yes, I will. And... Um, Marcus, what I'd like to do is just make a note today. We, we're recording this podcast on the on Thursday in the fourth Sunday of Easter. And you, I woke up this morning and received an email from you reminding me about the reading in the Liturgy of the Hours for today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from St. Irenaeus. That's right. Um, on, the, on the Eucharist. It's just, it's just beautiful. And I, if you um, don't... Have the liturgy, the hours. Let's see. It would be where did I put it here? I, somewhere I had the number. It was in Irenaeus. Um, 
book five, chapter two, section two. That's the that on page four hundred fifty-two. That's the reading today in the liturgy of the hours um, on the Eucharist and how it is that um, there would be no Eucharist if Christ did not come in the flesh. And um, it's a beautiful passage that it just, I think, points out uh, one of the precious gifts that we have in the Catholic Church is that uh, are those patristic readings in the Liturgy of the Hours. So, um, so, and I'll close with the prayer for today. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, in this holy season, We come to know the full depth of your love. You have freed us from the darkness of error and sin. Help us to cling to your truths with fidelity. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. Like you said, everybody, we'll pick up next week with chapter 22, book 5. And uh, thank you again for joining us. And we look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you. God bless.